Isaiah, this is Jay Jacobs. Welcome to the Job Shop Show. Today we have one of the custom manufacturing's rising stars. Welcome to the Job Shop Show, where we talk with the owners, suppliers, partners, and customers of custom manufacturers. Sam Griffith, listen and learn the secrets of top-performing job shops, the tools, techniques, and backgrounds that have made them successful. All in the quest of raising the bar for custom manufacturing. I'm your host, Jay Jacobs. National this Jet episode is, is sponsored over by 80 Paperless years Parts. Old. And one of the reasons they are still around is that they parts. are constantly innovating and using a secure, ITAR-compliant, cloud-based manufacturing system for suppliers that reduces the amount of time spent on sales, of what is estimating, quoting, administration, about and order processing. Of a half it offers of a seamless integration of with the accounting right. and ERP software tools zero, zero, that shops already zero, use, such as QuickBooks, with a E2, tolerance and job loss. Paperless Parts was founded with a mission to make manufacturing more accessible applying by streamlining the quote to cash such areas as robots, spend less time quoting, and, thinking and more time selling. This episode is sponsored by our intended. friends at the NTMA, the, job the National Show, Tooling and Machining hey, Jay, Association. Thank you for having me. The NTMA is an here. association of privately held so entrepreneurial based and family-owned businesses, representing nearly 1,200 small to mid-sized machine shops and tool and die shops across the country. They have approximately 30 very so active National regional chapters that host local events, you probably run apprenticeship programs, and provide other services to their regional yeah, members. I, I started As an Association of Peers, uh, the goal of the about, NTMA uh, 13, is to help members of the old. U.S. precision mm -hmm. custom manufacturing in industry achieve and, uh, profitable growth and business so, like success said, in a global economy through networking, workforce development My and training, is, technology, best practices education, advocacy, programs, and services with industry partners. So you went to learn to how your company, company can get involved with the NTMA, including how to join, visit ntma.org. I don't know if intention is the right word, but plans to join National Jet uh, as a career professionally. And I was just looking to get out of the area, get out of my comfort zone, look for something new, something different. And uh, I, I found myself in the elevator industry within construction. And I did project management in Washington, D.C. for Schindler Elevator Corporation. Um, I did that for about two years. I, I enjoyed the, the company and what I learned from it, but I didn't like the industry. I didn't like construction. Um, and like the, the kind of stress around the deadlines that was placed when you have people living in a building that you're trying to work on. Mm -hmm. So I, I started looking for other opportunities and um, I was actually had a couple that I feel like I missed out on, a couple I'm glad I missed out on. <laughs> I always had my dad as a mentor, I kept him close of all the opportunities I had and he kind of mm -hmm. talked through it and uh, don't know if he was kind of snaking his way through it but at some point he said you know why don't you come back to national jet and i never thought about it didn't think i was ready i didn't think he thought i was ready i was surprised to hear the the option and uh thought about it for a couple months and decided to pull the trigger and come home in retrospect do you think working outside the family business getting the perspective of how a in your case that was a pretty large company public company did that give you a different perspective that's proved valuable or some different tools that you may not have gained if you went right directly into the family business absolutely i, I think going right into the family business would have honestly been a mistake mistake for me personally um you know working for your father and getting the the leniencies that are just naturally there with working with family that I wouldn't have had to learn the hardships on my own of how to deal with a difficult customer or a difficult you know, client or um, even a, a consultant or a vendor for that matter, how to navigate those in a political sense of getting what you need, but also making sure you don't rock the boat too much. Um, I feel like I would have been very sheltered if I would have came here first. I feel like I, I learned those, those business skills through that experience and one thing going from the, the big company coming back to a small company and the adjustment was in a big company, it's numbers, it's business, it's numbers. It's not mm. relationships that much, um, at least internally. Mm -hmm. And when I came back to national jet, we're a 25 person shop. It was very much so a family business and decisions became more emotional than they were before, which made it a, a, a lot different of a challenge. 
I want to get into that a little later to talk about the emotional part. And that's a great perspective because, well, we'll get into it, but the, the rational part you learned, what would you say to maybe a father who has a son or daughter who's looking to get into the business after and they're graduating from college and perhaps what would you say to that young person who's graduating from college in terms of how to look at going to work somewhere else because I think a lot of folks are on both sides are eager to get into the business to family business start learning it and not waste any time but it really it's not a waste of time yeah yeah, there's a lot of valuable time spent a way of just learning yourself and learning different technologies and uh, different processes that other companies utilize, different cultures that are, that happen in other companies. And um, that time away, you know, it, it grows you separately from what you're used to. You know, you were raised, whether you worked in the shop growing up or not, you were raised by the same person that ran the company who a lot of times influences the culture of that company. So getting it, the experience away um, kind of gives you a chance to spread your own wings. And then when you come back into that organization, you can look at that culture differently as an outsider rather than just coming in under the umbrella and shaded and not seeing maybe some of the inefficiencies or some of the, the time lapses that have occurred where technology is kind of getting past where, of course, you have legacy knowledge that technologies may have surpassed where you currently are. I really like that word you use, shaded. It made me think of you are an acorn growing under the shade of a larger oak tree and essentially by going out to a, another company before it's being planted with nothing above you so that you have the opportunity to grow. Mm-hmm. What a great word you, you chose to use there. Right now we're recording in April, 2020, and you are an essential supplier, an integral supplier in the PPE space, the N95 mask. So can you tell us a little bit about how National Jet is involved in the N95 mask? Sure. Uh, So National Jet manufactures what they're called melt-blown dye tips. So they're essentially extrusion dyes, um, very specific to manufacturing absorbent and filtration materials, uh, which includes the material that are used for the N95 respirators. Mm -hmm. Um, There's only a handful of companies around the world that can manufacture these. And to my knowledge, we are the only ones that also repair them. So we've been in this business for about 25 years, um, manufacturing new and repairing these extrusion dyes. So these dyes we manufacture are anywhere, um, let's say roughly five feet in length and can have anywhere from a thousand to 2000 holes. Um, hole diameters can range from uh, 10 thousandths in diameter up to let's say 24 thousandths in diameter. Nice. And um, we make the entire die. It has, it's like I said, about five feet long and it's only about maybe three to five inches wide and it comes up to a knife edge. Hmm. Holes run along straight along great down that knife edge so we drill those micro holes right down that knife edge wow are you shipping these dyes around the world then most of our dyes are here shipped to in the u.s but they could be sent over from that corporation over to other facilities across the world and we have had a issue in the U.S. of getting enough mass. Mm -hmm. My understanding is the equipment that uses your dyes is quite expensive and Mm -hmm. takes quite a while to make that machinery. So maybe you can just share with us some of the things that you've seen in terms of being able to multiply the output of the material for the mass, which is where you're involved. Yeah, we get um, a lot of requests. People think we actually make the material material ourselves, that we extrude, you know, the fiber, which we do not. We're even further upstream. 
but making the dies, um, we're so far up that we're a little bit um, late into the, the production that the dies have to wear before you know we get a call from these manufacturers. So they're running them at such a high rate. Um, I don't know if they're necessarily pushing the limits, but they're running them around the clock to try and manufacture this filtration material that you know they, they're wearing the dies quicker. So we're now getting orders to you know supply these dies. And for us, the lead time for a brand new melt blown die tip typically would have been let's say 12 to 18 weeks. And uh, during these times with Kind of shifting some of our schedules and really reprioritizing jobs based on the country's need, we've been able to reduce our times to about eight to 14 weeks. But still, it's a process that takes time. You, these aren't sitting on the shelf. They, yeah. You can't throw a piece of material in and two days later get a part out. Absolutely. These are custom specs, custom built. Um, the specs come directly from the the non-woven or the filtration manufacturers, and we manufacture them to those specs. So there's no getting around that we can't even start a little bit ahead of time until we see what the specs are, order the material, and start the manufacturing process. National Jet is an expert and one of the world leaders at micro drilling holes and really small holes and before the podcast started we were talking about how sometimes it's frustrating that customers only think of you of making parts with holes so what are the range of services that national jet offers and how does the micro hole expertise lend itself to excelling at those services sure so as you know when we started it was all about micro holes our founder in 1937 he came up with, he developed a machine uh, that would hold a very tight con concentricity and he was able to make very tight and precise drills to drill these very custom small niche holes. Uh, since then we've been able to develop and look at what industry needs these holes and it's, believe it or not, it's kind of hard to find who needs a small hole. I mean, <laughs> it's small, small color. <laughs> you can't just Google it and find your customer base. Uh, what we focus on is typically flow. Anywhere where flow is critical, uh, a very small, precise, crisp hole is a lot of times necessary. Um, there's a lot of other ways of making holes that, that could be faster, um, maybe not quite as small, but it will not be as precise or it will not be as parallel or sharp corners on the entry and exit hole. And we mechanically drill all of our holes. Um, so with that, you know, we, we had these, these machines, we're drilling small holes, that's all in good and great, um, but we were drilling a lot of other people's parts. So we were only getting a small portion of the job and we started realizing that the burden of liability whenever it didn't work right, whose fault is it? Is it, was the part not to spec or is it the whole? Um, then also come the challenges, if the part isn't a spec and it comes in, we're expected to put the hole in a very specific place. We have to rely on someone else's offsets. Maybe they hit the tolerance, but it's offset a little bit, or maybe they miss the tolerance. So we had to deal with that every time a part came in. So we decided to vertically integrate and start making, trying to make the entire part ourselves. And uh, that started when my father took over the company. And so we bought a lot of equipment, invested in the company, and we now have an entire machine shop. Um, so I have a good specialty in uh, Swiss lathe machinery, um, where we see a lot of nozzles, orifices, carburetors. Um, we have CNC mills, vertical, horizontal, um, CNC traditional lathes, high RPM uh, machinery that we're trying to integrate our small technology into, uh, as well as a lot of EDM what, tech. What's high RPM for you guys? Uh, high for us would be 60,000. Okay. The so is micro hole drilling specifically defined as it has to be mechanical because on your website you show that you can create other small holes using plunge EDM, wire EDM, mm -hmm. you're doing it on the Swiss equipment. But is that the micro hole you define that as mechanical? 
Not necessarily in kind of our world. Um, I, I think, well, I guess generally we would define micro as under 30 thousandths in diameter. Okay. It's kind of where we, we see our niche being applicable to a customer. Mm -hmm. That's where we see the, the market limits start tapering off. Um, but for us, unless it's under five thousandths of an inch, maybe less than one thousandth, thousandths of an inch, that's what we really personally consider micro. Anything one to, to 30 is, can be rather large for us. Um, but as you also stated, we have EDM technologies. Um, so we do micro EDM and that's very big and that started with carpet fiber. So um, yeah. fiber industry, they require what is called a trilobal shaped hole. And a trilobal shape is basically a capital Y, if you will. Mm -hmm. And uh, they can range from the width of each leg from three thousandths of an inch up to uh, maybe 15 thousandths of an inch and the length of each leg from, let's say 10 thousandths up to uh, 30 or 40 thousandths. And that's what we'll use our Synchro EDM technology for. Uh, and we further took that and started developing wire EDM technology. And what we're very adapt to is running a 1,000th diameter wire, which is rather unique in the wire EDM community. Okay. The, I want to get into a little later on specifics on some of the equipment and how you do it. You mentioned the, some of the applications, but it seems like, as you said, that it's more about flow than a particular industry, but I can imagine there's medical, there's probably defense, there's probably engines and maybe telecom, think, other things that involve fiber. And I think you guys are in a great space because the parts are getting smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. People want more precision. And even if you, even if the part isn't getting smaller, the, the small parts that already exist, you want, you want the precision on those. You want to take out the variability. So that's where you guys, your expertise and just the history of the company seem like they really come into play. Yeah, it's, it's definitely kind of a double-edged sword from what we've noticed in that um, it's, the world is getting smaller. You think of technology, you think of phones, you think of circuit boards. Everything's getting more and more condensed and smaller and smaller and, and more impressive in what it can do. Um, but with that, so is technology, and that is really our competition. Um, where we developed all of our machinery back in the, since starting in the 30s, um, as you see these machine tool manufacturers, they start getting better and better to, to this need, to fit this, this demand that you say we're well positioned for. Mm -hmm. um, so it is... You know, integral for us to stay ahead of and on top of what technology other machine tool manufacturers are coming out with. Hmm. How much, I'm sure in the beginning there was a, it was almost a hundred percent art. Hmm. Has that, has the pendulum really swung the other way or how much is art still a key component in the manufacturing of micro holes? I would say as far as micro holes, it's still very much an art. It's just where you apply that art. Um, whether you use our original technology, which we still use, or we've been able to adapt that art to newer modern CNC machinery. Hmm. That's a good way of thinking of it. There are some couple great stories on your website about and, and even a video showing how small the parts, the holes can be. Could mm -hmm. you just talk about those, the, a couple of those? Yeah, we've got a, I mean, great history, like you said, since um, being in business over 80 years and in such a, a unique space, it's, it's something we're very proud of and like to talk about. Uh, the, two, the two stories you're mentioning that really stick out are, one is uh, drilling a hole in human hair. It's something we've been doing for a long time. Uh, it's, it's kind of a marketing thing for us. Well, we've got one guy out there is about half bald and, you know, we wait six months, grows his hair back and we <laughs> take some more and drill some holes in it. <laughs> uh, we'll actually feed a 1,000th diameter wire through that hole we put in the uh, hair and we'll make cards out of it, little marketing cards that we'll hand out at trade shows or at customer visits. Um, 
and we had back in uh, I think it was probably in the 60s we have a YouTube video link on before before you you describe the YouTube video how thick is a human hair uh, human hair is about three thousandths diameter and and well in diameter three thousandths of an inch in diameter wow uh, typically drill a one thou three tenths um, hole and then feed that one thousandths wire through <laughs> that's crazy uh, but he was on a show uh, called I've Got a Secret. Uh, mm -hmm. Very old show. I had never heard of it, to be honest. <laughs> it's in black and white. And there's a YouTube link in our video. And the first thing you see is just kind of a snowy, blurred vision before the, the video starts. Um, but they've got three celebrities at the time on the show. And it's all about the, this um, mystery guest who has a secret. And they try and guess what the secret is based on some questions. Mm -hmm. And his secret is that he can drill a hole in the hair. And he actually uh, had brought a machine to the stage and drilled a hole in one of the panelists' hair. <laughs> that's fun. That's that's a great, great video to have, story to have. There's another one as well about a competitor. Who, mm -hmm. Maybe you could share that. Sure. So, again, same the founder, John Coupler, is very good in marketing and He's a very uh, outspoken guy. And I think one time we actually had a Guinness uh, Book of World Records for the uh, smallest diameter drill. Uh, but in any case, he was very bolsterous about this ability. And there, it was a European company. It was a Swiss company, which, you know, the Swiss were world renowned for uh, Swiss watches, Swiss Army knives, mm -hmm. precision in manufacturing. And they took offense to this claim, this worldwide claim that he could make the smallest drill, the smallest hole in the world. He was just very, very prominent about it. And so one day they came in the mail, they sent him a drill. And they said, this is our smallest drill. Can, do you have a drill smaller than this? Prove it. He looked at it, took it under a microscope, took it on the shop. He put a hole in it with one of his drills and it, with a note in saying, no, it isn't. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah, but yeah, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. It seems that starting with the founder there that National Jet has been obsessed with innovation. And as you said, the machine tool manufacturers are starting to encroach onto your turf and you could just say, oh, well, yeah, but you, you want to get better. You make your own micro drilling machines in your tooling. Do you build those from scratch or do you adapt those from existing equipment? It depends on the application. Um, of course, the tooling came from our own design. Um, that, and that started from very day one. Mm -hmm. um, we designed the tooling. We have actually a tooling book and we actually sell tools. Um, we don't necessarily market it the most because we're not trying to create competition for ourselves. Mm -hmm. of a mostly an internal need of the fact that if somebody needs a, a one thou and seven tenths drill, we're not going to find that on MSC. So we've got to make it ourselves. Um, so that's a trade secret. Are you like Coca-Cola? You keep it locked up in the safe at night? We do. We do. We, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> one guy knows it and uh, well, not one guy, but uh, one guy keeps all the secrets, I guess. <laughs> the, and then you, the wire EDM, you are using 1,000s wire. Do you, that doesn't sound common. Do you have to have that specially made for yourself? We especially, we adapted the machines ourselves. Um, so we bought the machine, you know, as anyone would, and then we uh, modified it to be able to make the cuts and do what we wanted it to do. Um, the modification and i know that that's a lot of your secret sauce and mm -hmm. but for someone let's say they're not interested in doing micro holes but they want to improve the performance of an existing piece of equipment so you you didn't do any wire edm and then you got a wire EDM in you. He said, okay, we need to make this do things it wasn't designed to do. And you adapted it. You probably replaced some components. So off the top of my head, I'm thinking, all right, there's probably maybe some 
encoders or bearings that you might replace without giving away these trade secrets, how would someone, a shop owner, think and maybe there's some low hanging fruit that they, the places where they can start to improve the performance? I think just like any complex problem, you're looking to break it down to, to smaller, simpler, digestible uh, issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so you know directly what your needs are and what your wants are. Um, so your needs, you probably want it coming in the door with those needs. You need it to do this, to be capable of this or that. Um, and then your wants um, is what you're gonna need to modify. So you're looking for direct and indirect variables, basically. Um, things that you can change or can't change is when you're looking on the market of what's available. And then when it comes in, you're, you kind of have to have an idea in mind knowing that, okay, it can do these things. These are what I'm going to modify. These are what I'm going to pursue. This is what I'm going to change. And you're pretty much left on your own because you want it to be proprietary. You don't want to give out right. treatments. You don't want to enlist the help of your machine tool rep necessarily because you want it to be yours. So it does get uh, tricky and um, risky at that point but it's all about breaking down a complex problem into simpler parts that you can understand and digest. Mm -hmm. And that's probably just the DNA of National Jet over the years, not just you, not just your father. There's, I would assume, lots of people in the shop who are involved in the process of adapting the machines making your own micro drilling machines better, the tooling, figuring out how to make the tooling better or at least more consistent in the process. So it's, that's again, probably part of the DNA. Absolutely. I mean, you know, my father and myself, we might be the owners, but be frank, we're not coming up with this, this technology. We're not coming up with the ideas. We're just listening, mm -hmm. opening our doors, keeping, keeping them open and letting the experts that are our people, our guys on the shop floor, they're the guys that do it every day. They know what works, they know what doesn't work. And it's our job to listen to them and pick the right ideas. They ever fail with some of the ideas they want to try? Yeah. And how do you handle that? It's just part of it. Um, what do you say to them? <laughs> I guess it's just more of a, a learning experience than anything. It's because it's not them making the final decision. It's, it's us, you know, it's in management buying into that choice that yes, this is a good idea. And we're all in either we're all in or we're not. And so there's no finger pointing if they. No, the finger will be pointed at me. If, if I made the final decision, I, I decided to make that purchase and go down this road. Mm -hmm. they, they gave me enough information to make an informed decision. That was the decision. So regardless of who told me or if who pushed for it and who didn't, it was my decision to make that final trigger pull. So, you know, as an owner, you have to own that. I always like to think of it as you only fail if you don't win or you don't learn something. Yeah. <laughs> That's way of putting it. What is the limit? How small, how micro do you think you can get on holes? Can you add another zero? I <laughs> get asked a lot, you know, these engineers, they put some crazy tolerances on some drawings. They're, I mean, we'll see, you know, plus or minus 20 millionths on a drawing. We're thinking, who's holding that? Because we're not. <laughs> we'll tell you what we can do, but it's not that. Um, you know, the smallest drill we've ever tried and made is a four tenths of, mm. of a thousandths. And uh, we not had a request for it. It was actually by accident. We're trying to make a five and we just had our offset off and it was the first tool that came off the machine, but that's, that's the limit as we know it. You are quoted on your website as saying the solution is technology and you came back to National Jet or you came to National Jet in the role of special projects engineer. Is that where you developed the mindset of solution is technology as a philosophy? I, I think so. I've kind of always been a, a problem solver growing up. Um, 
but you know, you, you look at all the legacy knowledge and technology that we have here and the globalization of the world and with social media, you see what other people are doing and you can't help but to think we've got to keep pushing forward. Mm -hmm. We're going to catch us. So we've got to take this, this legacy, legacy experience and technology and transform it to an automated, a more um, unattended operation. And that's what we've been trying to do. When you joined the company, what were some of the projects that you got involved with initially that involved technology where you perhaps brought something into the company that hadn't been here before? Well, I don't know if I really brought much to it, to be honest. It, when I came in, you know, I was young and yes, I had a different experience and I came and I was ambitious as many young people are. And I tried different things. I looked at, um, you know, putting monitors and schedules all over the entire company. Um, what we did, do that, did that work? No, it was a terrible idea. <laughs> Why? It just, uh, we're small enough that it made more sense for, to have one scheduler going around and, and having that person-person contact every morning that takes 15 to 30 minutes of somebody's time to make sure everybody's in line rather than relying on a board to communicate that. Uh, at our size, it just made more sense to keep the current path that we were. What fell out when you tried to go digital as opposed to that analog approach? Communication. Um, uh, communication to me is very important. It's one of the most key things in any business, regardless of manufacturing or what it is and regardless of size. And when you have the ability of being small and being able to talk to any single person who is a national debt employee by a less than, you know, one minute walk. Mm -hmm. I don't think you can pass up that opportunity of a face-to-face -face conversation. Hmm. What other types of projects did you try? Um, some were successful and rather proprietary. Um, and that's kind of when we started moving into the CNC world from our very uh, um, homegrown machines that we have here. Yeah. Some were very costly and some didn't work. Um, I've had some very upset uh, account managers with me of <laughs> when's this going out the door, you, you know, every day I was thinking, I don't know, I'm trying, I think we're there. <laughs> Two weeks later, we weren't there. <laughs> yeah. But uh, it was just part of the, the rope that my father gave me to try and push things further. And eventually one day we actually did get there a couple, couple years later. And uh, that was actually a pretty big deal, that specific project. Great. I know that you have a robot in your QC area. Do you have any, do you have robots anywhere else besides QC? No, we actually uh, bought it for machine tending. Oh. Uh, we, we tried it in QC and uh, that was probably another fail. I uh, worked on it until 1 a.m. one night. You know, I'd, I'd been wanting a robot for two years. Finally found a reason to get one and before it was ready to do the machine tending, I was trying to set it up on a a quality inspection that I thought I could just get it to work for a couple of days and get that job through mm -hmm. next morning and parts were everywhere parts were <laughs> or it was just it was a mess it was a bad it was a bad mess to come into um but like I said I tried for two years to get a robot I wanted automation and I thought that's that's the direction we want we're mm -hmm. looking at how can we run lights out how can we spend eight hours to set up a machine so that we get 16 hours at night Mm -hmm. You get 48 hours over the weekend and a robot. I just thought we needed it, but being a job shop as any other job shop owner or um, project manager or general manager would know every job is different. How can you get a robot bot that is so automated and it's specific jobs to do the same thing over and over and over. Mm -hmm. Every job comes in the door is different. So how mm -hmm. can you buy it? It took me two years to find a project an opportunity. And finally one came in and I had one job that, uh, created the ROI for the entire robot. And to be honest, it sits a lot now. Mm -hmm. That job came around again and it was there and it works. How do you think of robots now? And have you looked at them in the last year or two to see if there's any advancements that might make it work in an area that wouldn't work before? 
Yeah, we're constantly keeping an eye on it. And where we find the, the challenge right now is the palletizing of the parts. Where does the robot know the part is going to be so it can pick it up? And without the investment of a vision system, which we don't have on ours, mm-hmm. we have to create a pallet. We have to, you know, make a pallet, drill a bunch of holes in it, which is just another manufacturing step. Mm-hmm. Make sure all the parts are lined up. Beyond that, somebody has to put all the parts in that pallet. So did we really, <laughs> the robot, we just, you know, creating it upstream. Mm-hmm. But that that's, I think, the new, the next step is to get some kind of um, AI or some kind of um, vision system that can recognize parts a little easier, see what's around the robot, not have to create guards and uh, collision detections and let the thing really be able to look what it wants to pick up, analyze the part, pick it up and put it in the orientation that you want. How do you stay on top of the new technology? How do you learn? Where do you get your information? Um, I'd say between just emails where, you know, companies that we bought our robot as a universal robot and just sitting in on webinars. Um, so how do you find out about the webinars so that you just can sign email campaigns, um, from, from the manufacturers? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. other two big ways are social media. I follow a lot of uh, manufacturing and uh, other manufacturing shops, OEMs on Instagram. And I find you see a lot of really innovative stuff. Everybody wants to put their best foot forward on social media. So you see the, the most challenging uh, solutions that they've came up with. Instagram then is a great tool. I, I think so. Yeah. To really benchmark what you can do versus what somebody else can do. I think it, it really tells you where you are. Does National Jet have an Instagram account? We do. Yeah, at National Jet. Excellent. Excellent. What other social media do you use? Uh, personally? Yeah. Uh, really just Instagram. I have a Facebook, but it, it's a bit antiquated. Mm-hmm. Um, LinkedIn seems to be really good on, obviously, on a professional level. Um, it's a lot easier way of finding the person you want to talk to within a corporation. Mm-hmm. And then YouTube is, is a large learner for me. Um, anytime I want training or I, I get stumbled on, if I'm doing a SolidWorks drawing, I go to YouTube. I don't call my rep. I don't um, look for training that I'm going to pay for. I go to YouTube and within probably 15 minutes, I've got my answer. Have you at National Jet put out YouTube videos at all? Besides, besides the one of the, yeah, that game show way back. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, a little too far ahead of the game on that one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, way ahead of your time. Yeah. Uh, I'd say the other, uh, the last bit of keeping up with um, um, technology and robots, and like you asked, is uh, through organizations that were part of like NTMA. Um, that's a big member organization of about a thousand members across the U.S., all U.S. manufacturers. Mm-hmm. Um, and we all come together kind of as one, you know, we all sign confidentiality agreements. We all respect each other's supply chains and customers, and we're just coming together to help each other as U.S. manufacturers. And what are the challenges we see on a day-to-day? What's the new technology out there? And uh, you build a lot of relationships from that. Um, they have conferences twice a year, uh, actually three times a year now in their new system, and getting together and just seeing what everyone else is doing, what they've seen, what you know, what webinars did they get from their OEMs on the email? What have they done on social media? It really gives you an up-to-date feel of what's going on. So you are involved on both attending national events as well as the regional events? Uh, we actually, in our location, we do not have a regional chapter. Uh, so we're at-large members, so we only attend national events. But it's okay. still um, worth it to us. And you had shared before the podcast that you chat pretty regularly with a, another shop owner in Philly and yeah. that's been a real plus for you. Yeah, that's uh, Mike Jenkins. He's the owner of Jenkins machine in uh, Bethlehem PA about 40 minutes North of Philly. And uh, we just struck a chord. We had uh, kind of similar transition stories. He's about 20 years before me, but mm-hmm. um, you know, the, the friendship we have and the camaraderie we have has been invaluable. And especially during this, this COVID-19 pandemic, being able to talk to him probably every two days, hey, what are you doing? How are you keeping your people safe? Are you, are you able to stay open? Are you keeping your guys paid? Mm. Um, you know, 
what are you facing? What, what restrictions are you under in your state? How are you handling it? It has just been a really helpful. It's uh, a couple of things that he was doing that I wasn't doing yet that I was able to adopt. And I hope the same for him. Um, but it's just a reassuring feeling to, to have someone you can talk to that's going through the exact same situation you are. Yeah, have that peer-to-peer -peer conversation. How did you meet him? Was it at one of the national events? We actually met, it wasn't a national event, and it was part of their Emerging Leaders team, NTMA mm -hmm. Emerging Leaders track. And they also do a conference uh, every spring. And I met him um, in Denver at an Emerging Leader Conference. And then I, I would see him again every fall at the national conference and, and so on. Yeah. I think that Zoom and being able to communicate with video remotely is becoming more of the norm, but there's just something to be said for the in-person, the live events. It The learning is, of course, valuable during the day, but it's the conversations, the camaraderie in the evenings, during the dinners, during the drinks at the bar afterwards. Those are where you really cement those types of relationships. And as you just pointed out, it's invaluable at a time when it, if nothing else, you just want to be able to talk to somebody who's going through the same thing. Right. It's a peace of mind, but you know, like you said, that, that press in the flesh or something to that, that trust that you, you get that bond, those intangible conversations that you have in between the lines that over a zoom, you just can't get, I mean, zoom is a great step in our current time to get past a phone call or an email, but visiting somebody or getting to know somebody person person there's, there's just no replacement for it mm -hmm. i want to get back to the technology in the shop and so sounds like you only run one shift are you able to do anything lights out run parts after people leave we yeah we, we focus on that a uh, good bit um on specifically on our swiss lady department and our horizontal machining departments we're focused on like i said during the eight hours we're here, we want to set it up so we can run at least 16 hours at night. Uh, uh -huh. Or, you know, the weekend, that's always a push. Every Thursday, we're looking at, okay, what's going to be going on this weekend? Or, I mean, even so back, far back as Monday and Tuesday, what job do we want to do next so that this weekend we can get a run? Um, if a holiday weekend's coming up, we're looking at, you know, this, this is a big time for us. You know, we got three days we can pick up unattended time. What can we, how can we juggle our schedule to, to capture that? Do you use any machine monitoring software? We don't. Um, I've kept a close eye on it, and I just don't know the, the value out of it. Out of it. Um, on mm -hmm. a, I spend a lot of time, you know, we're, we're not running 100,000 parts at a time where we don't change the part in between. We're running, you know, 1,000 to 10,000, and a job might take a day or a week. So looking at that spindle load isn't really value-added information for us. Yeah, but I'm, it sounds like it's one of the one of those items that is coming is just yeah. it's not adding or doesn't seem like it would add any value yet for you guys. Do you have any three D printers in house? We do. We have a MakerBot Method X. Huh. And, uh, How do you use that? Well, uh, it, it's hard to find opportunities for it. It was, it was a purchase out of MakerBot is actually one of our largest customers. We make a lot of parts in, into their machine. Mm -hmm. So this was the first model they came out that kind of hit the manufacturing space. They had always targeted education with their replicator models. And they came out and they could print ABS with this model. So it, it intrigued us. We wanted to further our relationship with them and understand their machine better so we could help them better as a supplier. But also we wanted to understand additive manufacturing. It's as a subtractive manufacturer, mm -hmm. and it's a challenge, it's technology. We want to know what it could do. Um, so we, we kind of bought it just for those two reasons. We didn't have a need. Um, and since then we've been able to use, make fixture jigs for, um, for QC, for our robot in fact. Our guys have came up with a couple of part handling things. Um, we fixed uh, a couple of bro fixture, broken fixtures so it's, it's still taking some time to really let it find its place, but we feel more comfortable understanding where out of manufacturing is at. It 
seems though that it's part of experimentation is part of the fabric of your shop and technology is embedded at every level. Does that, is that a fair statement? You would say that technology is sort of a fabric of the shop? I would say so, yeah. I mean, um, we take a lot of mitigated risks and the, the challenges we take on and it's always looking at a new job. Can we make this part? Um, yeah, sure, maybe. Do we want to make this part? Do we want to invest <laughs> in what it's going to take? Does it fit our niche? You know, we have a nice niche in the market. Do we want to disrupt that? Mm -hmm. um, little tools like the 3D printer, trying to find that, understand that technology better is just an R&D thing to, to know where we're at and where the technology is. I understand you bought one in 1989. 1989. What was that? What was that like? Well, if you looked at the parts wrong, they would break because <laughs> essentially it was a machine that, that created the parts out of a material called a cyanoacrylate, which is what super glue is. Oh, and at the time, the, there was no solid works. CAD systems were not solid modeling systems and you had to buy a system from Aries Technology to create the geometry that could run on the first 3D printers. Now that changed pretty quickly, but it was geometry that was created through Boolean operations. Matter of fact, I just did a podcast with Kevin Dyer of Interpro, who was the salesperson who sold the company I was working for, the Sterolithography 250 from 3D Systems. And he went out in 1996 and started his own 3D printing service bureau, which is still in business today. So we, we talked a lot about the history of 3D printing. It's definitely changed though. And it's so inexpensive today that as you outlined, it's for a thousand dollars, $2,500, you can get a printer that's pretty decent and just try something, experiment. I'm wondering if you could wave a magic wand and had unlimited cash and you could bring along all the trade secrets and everything, but you're starting more from scratch. What might be a couple things that you would do or incorporate that just because of being a legacy shop may not be possible today or for a while? I'd build my own machine from scratch. There, there's combination of technologies that I've seen from quality control and vision systems mm -hmm. to um, new controllers on CNC mills um, to work holding um, and then obviously the the general capabilities of um, CNC mill in turn that I would really like to to create a system ground up. What would be the benefits of doing that beyond what the existing process gives you? Uh, kind of simplicity into being able to make part um, that you wouldn't necessarily need to be a, a craftsman um, machinist with 10 years under your belt to make a, a specific part. Um, mm -hmm. to, to see the part, reference it, orient it, um, indicate it on a, a digital, from a digital level um, and maybe even a, a virtual level offsite and have the machine run. Hmm. I love that. I love that. It sort of probably encompasses uh, everything that uh, you've been doing in the shop there. Mm -hmm. So I want to share with the audience that I called you a rising star because you are 32 years old and technology is sort of embedded just within you, partly because you have grown up with technology with computers with the phones um, and the smartphones so when you say Instagram it just that's just natural for you it's not necessarily natural for a 60 year old shop owner uh, even even myself I I peer into Instagram but I don't have an account and I don't regularly go on Instagram to find information so Let's say I'm a 60-year-old shop owner and 
I've got a growth mindset and I want to make technology a fabric of my shop, but I can't do it. How do I find a Sam? Do I, do you think I have one in my company or if not, where do I find them? How much do I have to pay them? I, I guarantee you most people have them in their company, but can you afford to allocate them in that way? You know, they, they're with you for another reason. They, you know, they're probably producing, they, they, they have a purpose there. Um, what I found is interns. And it sounds simplistic, um, but if you have a local university with a mechanical engineering department, get to know the one of the professors, get to know the dean, and every summer or winter or even during the semester, see if you can pick one up and set up a program. It builds a relationship with their you know the graduating class, but it's incredible what these kids can do. We we've had uh, two mechanical engineer interns since December, and. You, you know, you're saying I'm young, 32, millennial mindset, technology. I have technology questions. I go to him. <laughs> so so I, true. Technology's yeah. already surpassing me. And <laughs> these, these kids are great. And matter of fact, the one we have right now is most likely going to turn into a full-time employee when he graduates in May. That's great. They almost speak a different language. How do you manage them? It, it's interesting. It, I mean, that's right. That um, I had two of them on at one time. One came uh, about a month before the other. And uh, the second one, yeah, I, I'd asked him to do something. I, I don't remember what it was, but it was a task. And he, he went to the other guy and he said, uh, well, when does he want it done by? I, I need a deadline. I don't know. Does he want it done at the end of the week? Does he want it done today? And it never occurred to me kind of, um, yeah, I just needed a drawing or something of giving him a specific very detailed when do i need it done by what are my expectations and it seems to be what you know that age group wants is what do i want what do i do first i can do this i have this you know i know how to do it i know how to start it but and it's gonna take this long when do you want me to start it you reminded me something sam that we had a i get some entrepreneurial coaching and we had a guest speaker come in and he talked about the different generations and what they want. And what he said is that the generation X here is used to being told what to do. They go to school and to get an A, you have to do this to get a B. So all these metrics are defined for them. So exactly what you said, they will do a great job but they really do expect the metrics of what yeah. doing well is. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. What on the flip side just shuts them down and demotivates them? Hmm. Or just any other insights in when having them there, things you have to be conscious of. I think keeping them curious, keeping them engaged. Um, yeah, there, there's later generations in our shop that they want to come in and they want to work. They want to work hard. They want to do this every day. They want, they want to know what the schedule is. They want to be rigid. They know how to do this, and that's what their comfort zone is. Mm -hmm. I think this younger age, they want to be challenged. They want something new. They want to learn. They want to grow. They, they want to expand. Uh, they want to create something meaningful. Um, and I think that their growth is important to them. Mm -hmm. It was always my mindset before I came to National Jet that you work somewhere for about three years and you jump. That was the mindset I had. That's how you grew through your career is you kind of jump steps. Mm -hmm. You weren't going to make it all the way up through a company. It's just not how it works. And that's not how our minds worked. We wanted to see the get far and then get as far as you can with a company. And once you see that you're, you're capped out of where they're going to take you, what they're going to show you. You jump to someone else, take that limit, and then you're now at the base to, to start a new scale. I think keeping them curious, giving them opportunity to try new technologies and give them a little bit of freedom is important. Yeah, that's, that's really helpful. Thanks for sharing that. You had mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, and this relates to it, there's a lot more emotion 
in a small business than in the large organization. How do you, as the president now, owner of National Jet, how do you think of that? What are some of the areas that you have to be more conscious of that as a president you might, I don't know, uh, bring down morale in the shop if you're not not thinking of it? It's a, a sensitive area to, to jump around. You build a relationship with everyone here in your company. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to make a decision if someone's not a team player, if they're not for the best interest of everyone else here. So it, you have to remind yourself. And if you see it, it's known on shop wide. You know, by the time someone in, in the office sees it, that means everyone else probably knows it. Mm-hmm. Probably have seen it for a while. And if you don't take action, you're not taking care of everyone else here and respecting the hard work that they do. And I think that's the, the burden of someone, anyone in management or with hiring, firing power is making those decisions, making those judgments, keeping a finger on the pulse. It's not easy. And it, it's a lot of sleepless nights thinking, is this the right decision? Is it not? You made a great point. Everybody knows about it before you in a sense. And you actually lose credibility as a leader if you don't make those decisions. I think so. Yeah. I think it for so long, it's uh, your good people will get tired of seeing it. And if you don't take action, they will, and it'll be them leaving. Outside of the more technical, I'll, I'll throw NTMA in there. Do you have any other coaching groups that you belong to or that the that comes into the company that may be more on the management side or the t- training side? We actually hired uh, Roger Atkins um, before he came became oh. president of NTMA. Really? Yeah. He had a, or has had a, a company called uh, RG3 and uh, he was a, a management consultant within manufacturing. And we brought him on to help my transition into my father's role. Um, hmm. He worked with us for two years and uh, I could, we couldn't be happier with what he did for us. And we could be prouder for his ascension into president in team and it uh, built a, a really good relationship between, you know, us and Roger, but also it, it kept um, the culture that we had here within the company where we wanted it to be. And it kept mm-hmm. the relationship with my father where we wanted it to be. Kudos to you guys for doing that. That's wonderful. How do, well, obviously the, I was going to say, how do you find somebody like Roger, but you, you joined the NTMA, right? That's right. <laughs> we, yeah, we met him at NTMA and, you know, we were friends beforehand and uh, he called on us, gosh, I'd say two or three years. He kept calling and wanting to, to help us out and help us out. We kept deferring him, you know, and <laughs> yeah, relinquishing his emails. And finally we put, bit the bullet and brought him on and it was was one of the best moves we've made. That's great. Are there any specific areas of running the business now that are pain points that could be technology related or could just be a different way of running the company, but pain points that you want to bust through that are creating friction on doing the, the mission of the company? Yeah. Uh, being a small company, everyone here wears a lot of hats. You only have so many resources to, to delegate a task to. Mm-hmm. If a fire comes up or a good opportunity comes up, everyone wants to jump on the good opportunities and a fire comes up, you drop everything else to fix it. Uh, so it's a, it's a big challenge handling all that. And specifically when we work with you know, the large uh, companies of the world and their quality assurance requirements, we have to make sure we're within compliance. So it, it's a lot of seemingly chasing your own tail and not necessarily working on the business as you'd like to be. And uh, it's just a, a lot of juggling, I guess, that you'd like to be able to focus on the future and, and, and the growth of the company, but there's so many day-to-day responsibilities that, that pull you back. It's, it's, hard to get that that lift to be able to zoom out and see the company of what's really important because you, you just get sucked into the weeds. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you have to be really deliberate in 
thoughtful on making time to work on the growth and not firefighting for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when you uh, grew your company, you know, you guys started at five and went to, to three over 300, you said, right? At Rapid? Yes. Yeah. What kind of, how did you handle all the regulatory, the quality assurance, legal responsibilities <laughs> that came with that growth? I punted. <laughs> and, and, and I mean that facetiously, but, but also seriously in that we did prototypes and my, I just hate bureaucracy. So those things you just talked to me about are bureaucracy. So I wouldn't get rapid involved with parts that required that sort of bureaucracy. We just said, no, we got to a certain point where we, hired a really great individual to run our quality group and he loved doing that stuff. So we began to accept some projects that would involve those sort of uh, compliances, paperwork, discovery. It, but that was all from my perspective delegated. I didn't get involved mm -hmm. with it. I essentially approved the check to get us ISO certified. We also got, uh, what's the, uh, the, the next generation, the uh, AS9100, I think. Yep, yep. We, in a, we had four different manufacturing facilities. So in one of those, we got that, that uh, certification. Mm -hmm. But that was something I had no interest in, so. <laughs> Well, kudos to you. It's it's a time sucker, and I you know I try to take it on, but I'm it's a learning curve. It takes so much more time to learn it first, and then understand it, and then do it. So one of the things that we used, and it, we came in later in the game, and I've mentioned this on other podcasts, but there's a testing system called Colby K O L B E. And it measures four areas and gives you a score of one to 10 on fact finding, follow through, risk taking and sort of hands on desire. What it, what in the area you just described, you really want somebody who is high on the fact finding and high on the follow through. So, yeah. and you want them really low on the risk taking so that, <laughs> I mean, those, all those things are put in place to take away risk. So you don't want right. somebody going around the system. And when you are looking to hire into specific roles within the company, you sort of know the characteristics that you need for the role. So as you test people, at a certain point in the process and find out, do they really, they may say certain things, but is their natural inclination to do what you need them to do day in and day out? And you found that test to be pretty accurate? Yes, it was the most valuable tool, personality testing tool. I've done a bunch of the others, the Strength Finders, the Meyer Briggs, other ones, and this, the Colby is definitely the most actionable. Okay. No I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been a lot of fun, Sam. I, yeah, I enjoyed it. Yeah. This was a fun conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time out today to chat with us. And I really like the, the energy you have and such a positive outlook. It's exciting to think about where national jet will grow to over the next couple decades under your leadership. And I really sort of get goosebumps just thinking about all the little things, the incremental improvements that have gone into the process of drilling and creating such tiny holes. It's you, I never knew that this was possible till started researching your company and what you guys are doing. So thanks for talking about that and sharing how you're using technology in the shop, how it's really a, again, I'll use the word fabric of the shop and how 
some some of the people side things that we talked about those were super mm -hmm. helpful too so any last thoughts anything you think we might have missed that you want to share no i i really appreciate the conversation and the time to talk with you and really honored to be on your show and uh look forward to watching your show in the future and all the other great uh people you've been interviewing thanks appreciate that where can people find national jet what's your website www.najet.com so that's najet.com yeah. yeah. and how about you personally what's the best way to reach you uh, honestly, just Google us and call the number. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, folks, this is a pivotal time. Manufacturing is coming back to the U.S. and we really have to up our game to make sure it stays here. So let's make it easier for the companies buying our custom parts to decide to stay here, to keep manufacturing parts here. My challenge this week is to identify the tech savvy expert in your shop that young X generation and give them an opportunity maybe even give them a budget of a thousand dollars and tell them to run a science experiment try some new software buy something that might not work and be okay with that because again it's only a failure if it doesn't work or if you don't learn something until next time let's keep those spindles turning those lasers cutting and maybe even think about how to collect data on them at the same time. Have a stellar day.